Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we usually challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. Um, and this is another special pandemic episode, so in a way, just existing is the challenge right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> today, we're going to be talking about inequality and the COVID-19 pandemic with Alex Jansen. Uh, hello, Alex. Hi. <laughs> So Alex is a PhD candidate in political science at the University of Toronto. Her work focuses on welfare states and the political economy of skills and advanced industrial democracies. Uh, Did I adequately sum up your bio there, Alex? Yeah, definitely. That works. Those are probably like a whole (laughs) lot of big gibberish words for most people, but... (laughs) I don't know. I think... I guess the welfare state's kind of like a, a term not everybody might know about, but basically it's just you know, what is the future of work and how do we make it more fair, I guess, is layman's terms? Yeah, definitely. So my long-term kind of interests, both research and practical, have been in uh, social policy, basically what do governments do to try and make labor markets more fair and equitable, um, and what don't they do, I, I guess, which might come up today. So Alex, actually, I have a question. Have you solved inequality yet or <laughs> I mean, do you know what the answers are uh i mean i think that the general answers are something like massive wealth redistribution so specifics <laughs> a little more fuzzy and billionaires <laughs> yes yes so i think one of the the ways to start could be to talk about pandemics have sort of a way of revealing the problems and weaknesses that already exist in a society so Alex, I'm curious for your thoughts on what are some issues that come to your mind when you think about the inequalities that COVID-19 has been exposing? Yeah, I mean, I think this is such an important and such a huge question. Um, The most obvious one when we started talking about uh, talking about talking about this, which is extremely (laughs) eloquent, um, was age, right? Because the, the initial kind of message that we were all getting was like, if you're youngish, you're probably going to be fine, or it's like a crappy flu. And that turned out to be really misleading and quite unhelpful messaging, in my opinion. But I guess the first inequality, yeah, is age. So people who are older or have pre-existing conditions are more susceptible to getting really sick. And what we've seen in a lot of countries is that some of the really terrible outbreaks have occurred in kind of senior care facilities and similar, which, I mean, yeah, maybe that's not a pre-existing inequality, but we do know that, you know, there are issues with understaffing and quality of care and those sorts of institutions. There's also, you know, elder poverty is a real issue. Canada has been doing pretty good on that. In general, it has been decreasing over time, but in many countries, that's a huge problem, especially when you combine it with issues around isolation and... Um, mental health care for for seniors. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think, uh, I don't know what the stats are elsewhere, but in Canada, I think something like half of COVID deaths have been linked to long-term care facilities. So this is really at the crux of what's going on in, in Canada, but probably around the world as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And I mean, I think the other aspect of age of this is one that's a little more fuzzy for me, but it's this question of like the long-term effects of a pandemic and a coming recession on people's life cycles and life choices, right? So some people have been joking about a, a pandemic baby boom, but I'm almost curious if we'll see the opposite 
see millennials delaying those kinds of family planning decisions, delaying things like trying to buy a house, not that it, any of us can because we eat too much <laughs> avocado toast, etc. Um, but is this like the second time that we all move home to our parents? I don't know. Yeah, the yeah. downturn isn't looking so good for us, is it? No. And I feel like there's also sort of a really sardonic edge to the jokes about COVID babies, because there has been a problem with women being able to access birth control. Yeah, I mean, so this is like, this relates to another uh, axis of inequality. I feel like I need a better phrase than that, but that's what I'm kind of thinking <laughs> about, which is um, gender. So if, like me, you're lucky, you're on a like a white collar quarantine, where you're in your apartment or your house, and you're kind of okay, you have what you need, you don't have to go out you're not an essential worker, things might be looking good. But we do still know that the trends in terms of things like housework and looking after children, we know that women still do the lion's share of the work. So even in those like super middle class uh, quarantine households, there are po possibly still some issues of inequality coming up when it comes to trying to get houses through this practically, and organizing childcare and things like that. So um, for example, I was looking at this. There was a study in Britain in 2018 by the Office for National Statistics, which showed that women were doing an average of 10 more hours of household work a week, including childcare. So that's quite a big difference, especially over the space of a month or more. Yeah, and that's sort of like um, one of the the slowest changes in terms of gender equality that we've seen is the sort of equalization of the share of household work, it's moving a lot more slowly than other aspects. So for sure. <laughs> and now imagine all of the kids are home from school and both of you have to work from home. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so tough. I really feel for parents going through this, like trying to just keep your kids entertained or from putting their fingers in power sockets. And then you add to that, like trying to do some home learning or whatever super stressful and also you're still expected to carry on the work that you were supposed to be doing like i can't <laughs> yeah and different workplaces um some of them are being really understanding about the sort of lower expectations for productivity at this time but others aren't at all so even if you can work from home you can face those multiple pressures for sure totally right and it, it it's um one of the kind of aspects of inequality that i find really interesting is the the issue of like what do we make sure is fair for everyone and what's kind of arbitrary? And I think that the expectations that employers have of their workers working from home, that's one area where things are really arbitrary right now. Um, and I hope that, you know, bosses are being kind and, and some really are, but, you know, you, sh you shouldn't leave issues of equality down to uh, arbitrary decision-making, I think is kind of like a, a principle for me. <laughs> yeah, and it's really... Um... For me, there are certain rules around work that I just sort of assumed were in place that the pandemic has revealed really aren't. So, for example, paid sick leave is not a thing that most Canadian provinces require. Um, and I did not know that. Yeah, I mean, that that's shocking, right? I think not to rag on Canada, but I think Canada sometimes like gets the get out of jail free card by being like, things here aren't as bad as the US. And this is, you know... Also, it's our national identity. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty low bar. Totally. Like, I think Canada can, can hold itself to a higher standard. Um, and paid sick leave is one of those standards that should be in place. It's kind of shocking that it's not. Yeah. 
So I think the one um, the one piece of this that we haven't talked about yet is how the pandemic is revealing race inequalities that are already existing. Um, is there anything that's sort of come to your mind on that issue so far? Yeah, totally. A, a bunch of stuff. So we've seen, again, like we've seen reporting from the U.S., we know that the rates of mortality are way higher for Black Americans, which is just extremely uh, upsetting and not surprising. And then some people go into these horrible thought spirals about like underlying horrible eugenicists' ideas about survival. But I mean, really what it's showing is two things. One of those is poverty, right? COVID-19 is a respiratory issue. The conditions of living in poverty increase your chances of having kind of underlying conditions and not being able to get the care you need. And so that's the second one, right, is access to health care. And there's been a real history of, of maltreatment of people of color in the U.S. Um, and I think also in Canada a little bit, though I don't know as much about it. No, yeah, <laughs> we don't get off. We don't get off the hook on that one. Yeah. So I was looking at this a little bit the other day to try and figure out what Canada's deal was. Um, and what I did find was there is a bunch of professors at York University here in Toronto who've done studies around the health of migrants over time. So there's this like effect usually where you have uh, migrants come in and they have actually better health outcomes than the rest of the population, probably due to like selection effects on who can afford to migrate and who meets Canada's criteria. But over time, people's health actually deteriorates and they end up doing a lot worse than the rest of the population. And that's partly because of economic exclusion, struggling to get decent jobs. But it's also to do with kind of the cumulative effects of, of not being treated as equal generally and also by the healthcare system. As if moving countries isn't hard enough. <laughs> yeah, and I on that same sort of... Those same effects are also felt by Indigenous Canadians um, who for... Some of the same reasons, even though obviously indigeneity, they've been here for forever, but uh, there's unequal access to healthcare, higher levels of poverty, and those kinds of systemic injustices, um, including like uh, the on reserves and things like that, housing is extremely cramped and um, there are few facilities. So where if a, a COVID outbreak occurs in one of those communities, um, there's a high level of vulnerability and people are really worried about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, as you say, these are issues that we've known about for a long time and it's almost like only when there's a pandemic and we could all get it or anyone could get it, do we start to actually think about, Hey, what are the risks that we're exposing people to on a regular basis as a result of their uh, status in society? So when it comes to First Nations in Canada as well, you see some areas that still don't have consistent quality access to food and electricity and water and things like that, which makes all of this that much harder. Yeah, for sure. I think um, one of the images that's been going around the internet on this, I can't remember what uh, state it was in, but there was a lineup of cars for at least a mile for a food bank in a an American community. And I think that that highlights, well, so access to food is always a problem, but particularly when um, a pandemic causes an economic crisis, uh, you reveal really what the social safety nets are and um, how sort of unprepared they are. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Canada and the US are both wealthy enough countries. There shouldn't be food insecurity, full stop, like pre-pandemic. Like, that's inexcusable. People should have access to food and shelter. Um, and we're seeing, you know, how how fundamental that is to making society function when you do end up with people needing to shelter. I mean, the same thing is an issue for uh, people who are experiencing homelessness in cities and out of cities as well, I guess. And, you know, we've seen some sort of emergency measures come into place there, but really it's sort of a like, oh, oh yeah, I guess we can't ignore people who are struggling right now because they might spread disease. And that's just, that's just a hideous way to view this problem, quite frankly. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, I think that also there's been a certain extent to which the response hasn't been protecting those people so much as further criminalizing um, behaviors that put other people at risk, which I find really heinous. And that's true for the homeless population. There have been cases where they've been sort of fined or arrested for being violating social distancing when they don't have a home. Um, but it's also true for um, you know, racialized minorities who are at a much greater risk of being victimized by the police um, during, especially in a situation where they're, the police are sort of more present and they're monitoring your behaviors in a sort of more active way than is generally the case. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on the one hand, you know, I understand the need that, you know, we need to enforce that people stay home as much as possible. But on the other hand, having police walk around parks, you know, who is it that they're going to go up to and disrupt and bother? You know, that's that's a question that goes to the heart of our attitudes about equality. Um, I've even heard of things like uh, friends of mine who've gone grocery shopping. And in so in Toronto, where I am, you're supposed to just have one person go from your household. So a friend of mine hadn't realized this, went along with her partner, was told that only one of them could go in. They were like, okay, fine, one of us will go in. <laughs> the white couple behind them both got let in. They were just like, really? Like, this is such a petty... <laughs> form of racism to be uh, like to be, how do people still have the energy to be racist at a time like this i don't know yeah it's uh, depressing but also entirely predictable yeah and right goes all back to those issues that we were talking about around uh who can socially isolate in a kind of comfortable way i mean granted no one is probably doing their best and having fun right now like this is a stressful time and it's very worrying and the news cycle is uh compelling and hard to look away from but some people are more comfortable at home than others yeah definitely i mean i've been thinking about this a lot because i recently moved to ottawa and my new apartment is bigger than my old apartment and it also has just such better access to the outdoors and the sidewalks are mostly wide enough that unless I'm out on like a weekend when there are lots of people out, it's pretty easy for me to socially distance here. But in my neighborhood in Toronto, that would not have like none of that would have been possible. And it would have been really cramped, you know? Yeah, absolutely. This has come up uh, with some of the stuff that's going on in the UK as well. People are being told not to use parks. And, you know, I kind of get it. But also, most people don't have outdoor space that they can use. Otherwise, if I was stuck in this apartment with four children all the time, I would really want to let them go and run around in the park. Absolutely. <laughs> it's also, you know, it's going to be easier to go for a walk if everyone is going outside and being mindful of each other, right? Like, 
I have a dog, so she needs walking. So I do go out every day because, well, we live in an apartment and otherwise things would get real gross <laughs> real fast. Um, and most people are good at ducking away from each other and giving each other space. And yes, it's hard to like communicate friendliness when you're wearing a face mask, which a lot of people are now. Um, but it is it is possible for people in high density places to share what little green space there is sensibly, I guess. So anything that allows that without, you know, over-policing people of color, especially, and people who are homeless, that would be okay with me, I guess, just just to help us all get through this. Totally. And I think the bigger problem a lot of the times is that the sidewalks aren't designed for social distancing. I don't know if you guys saw this, but there's a, a guy in Toronto who built a social distancing machine, <laughs> um, and he filmed himself trying to go around... Uh, Young Street, which is one of the biggest cities in Toronto. And it was basically just this big um, apparatus that he put around his head that created like a circle six feet around him so that <laughs> he'd, he'd have to physically bump into things if he was breaking social distancing. And he oftentimes had to go like into the middle of the street in order to do it, which is a problem because Toronto, like most cities, hasn't shut down car traffic. So I don't know, I think cities have a, a role to play too, just to sort of think about if people are accessing the outdoors or trying to get essential goods, how do they get there safely? And like, what should our priorities really be at this time? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I've seen, you know, I'm not an expert in this area, but I have seen a bunch of people on Twitter saying, you know, hey, these issues with the sidewalks, people with disabilities, wheelchair users, uh, people who are using... Um, prams or pushchairs to get their kids around they've known about these issues for ages like it's kind of another one of those times where it's like okay we choose not to care about certain groups of people in society until there's a pandemic and then it's convenient for everyone you know it's the same with working from home <laughs> for people yeah. who have you know for whom it would be much easier to participate in the workforce if they could work from home regularly yeah and now we're seeing everybody uh, all these jobs that, oh, it's no possible way you could work from home. Suddenly everyone's working from home. Exactly. So. <laughs> Turns out it was a choice all along. Um, yeah, so I want to talk a little bit more about the the white-collar quarantine and uh, how class plays a role in who gets to stay at home. So I guess maybe can you talk about can you talk about those inequalities a little bit, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find... Um, Work and the ways work divides society is, you know, extremely fascinating and always important. And this is definitely one of those cases. Um, I was listening back to episode 17 of Pullback, where you started to talk about, you know, what, what we are seeing, what are the champions and the problems of this pandemic. And one of the things that I think, Kristen, you raised was this issue of what wage workers get versus what gig workers or independent contractors or the precariat get. Right. And, and this is this is a huge divide. So, I mean, to kind of break it down a little, um, if you are an employee, you get a bunch of rights that you don't get if you're a contractor or a gig worker. You might not get sick leave, but you do get some annual leave and you do have job security, which means that it's difficult to fire someone without a good reason. But there's a growing population of people who are not in a standard employment relationship. So they are gig workers or contractors or in precarious work. So that means they're doing short-term contract work, 
they might work irregular hours, they might, they don't have those same rights uh, to maintaining their job over time. And a lot of those people are doing essential work right now. So this is, this is a huge part of the, the white collar quarantine divide, right? Is who gets to work from home and who is considered essential. And who just loses their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And who gets nothing. Don't forget me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a huge problem, right? So, I mean, of course, we need essential workers to keep working. Uh, we need health professionals, especially. We need social services. We need firefighters. We need people collecting waste. Uh, we need people working in food production. We need people keeping things clean. We need our supermarkets stocked. But a whole section of those jobs are not employment, and they're not well paid, and they're now super hazardous, right? All We're asking all these people to risk their personal health for us to get by. And I, I mean, it's, I'm not the first person to say this by any means, but it just, it just shows you how underappreciated these uh, people are. And also that our kind of legal infrastructure of rights has been failing this group of workers, right? They, they have no uh, right to stay home if they think that the conditions they're being asked to work in are unsafe without losing their jobs. Well, and this is a conversation that's been going on since well before the pandemic in the discussion of how we should treat gig workers like Uber drivers. You know, it's it's something that we could have fixed before now. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it's not like no one was talking about this before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I was looking at the um, the benefits that Canada's been releasing uh, yesterday, so the, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. And one of the rules that it has is that you can't have voluntarily left your job. So if somebody doesn't get proper protective equipment, doesn't feel they're safe, and they decide to quit, they now don't have access to the income support program. At least for now, that might change, but I don't know. Seems like a big power imbalance. <laughs> Definitely. I think it's a huge power imbalance. So there's a, a pretty good interview. It's a CBC piece um, where Michael Enright interviews Dina Ladd, who is the executive director of the Workers' Action Center here in Toronto. Um, and she basically explains the conditions that people who are working as cleaners, janitorial staff, are being faced with. So Mostly this kind of work is contracted out. Um, most hospitals in Canada subcontract their cleaning. So a lot of people who are working those jobs are not employees. Um, they are independent contractors. They don't tend to be paid well generally. As far as I know, most people aren't getting hazard pay at this point. They're also working in pretty scary conditions. They often are working with heavy chemicals. Many have been asked to work with even heavier chemicals without kind of proper information and without proper protective gear about how to make sure they're not, you know, getting things like chemical burns. And a lot are working really irregular hours or extra hours. And, and for a lot of those people, they can't just refuse to work if they are worried about their safety because they don't have those same accesses to rights that people who are employees have at all. And if the work is traditionally paid less than other people's, then they probably don't have a huge safety net of their own on the back burner either so yeah absolutely right the issue is is not just that income but that over your lifespan if you're earning minimum wage or even less as a contract worker you're not going to have much in reserve that's a really important point yeah so i mean there are huge inequalities in who has to go to work right now and 
already the people who have to go to work right now tend to be the least protected. Uh, but another element of the sort of like white collar quarantine that I want to talk about is the experience of a pandemic and how that's different. And we've talked a little bit about that in terms of living spaces and access to the outdoors, but I wanted to, to talk a little bit more about housing and homelessness, prisoners, long-term care, the people that are being put at risk just by their living situation right now. Um, is there a particular situation that stands out in your mind or a story that really has stuck with you so far? Oh, man. I mean, they're just all awful. I did. I don't remember the journalist, but I did read a piece in the New York Times about someone who had found a way to communicate with a relative of theirs who was in Rikers. And just about the, the kind of, I mean, already you're in an extremely stressful living situation, right? If you've, you've been incarcerated, but having no access to information, no access to any protective gear, and no ability to stay away from other people is just absolutely psychologically terrifying, I'm sure. Yeah, the prisons are pretty bonkers right now. Not that they weren't before, I guess. <laughs> No, but again, it's just highlighting what was already probably an unsafe situation. There's a stat that on um, prisons that really stuck out in my mind. Um, apparently, a quarter of the prison population is either elderly or people with pre-existing conditions. So, Oh, I saw that. That was yeah. nuts. Yeah. So, I mean, these are people that were they not incarcerated, we would be sort of, at least in theory, jumping all over ourselves to protect. Um, but they're in some of the highest risk places for COVID outbreaks. Um, just, just seems like it's a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a <laughs> catastrophe. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can couple that with some of the issues we were talking about around police and racism and homelessness as well. And then you think, well, who is it that tends to be stuck in prison? Who is now extra exposed? I haven't seen anything super convincing about prisons that have, you know, put in place really sensible quarantine measures. Maybe, maybe there is a, a, not a good prison, you know, but maybe there is a prison doing a good job of implementing safe ways of doing this. Um, one of the sad parts of this for both prisons and for senior care facilities, of course, is that pretty early on they had to stop accepting visitors, which is absolutely sensible, but also probably heartbreaking. Yeah, and there was actually a case of an Edmonton prisoner who he had spoken to a journalist about the conditions in the prison that he was in and how he was concerned for his safety during the pandemic. And the staff at the facility actually punished him by cutting off his access to phone calls. So he's in a situation where he can't get visits and now he also can't speak to his family on the phone. Um, which, I mean, it seems like a human rights situation that eventually will get some recourse in the courts, but that does not make his situation better now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this, this is a huge issue for people in prison, for people in any situation where they're really exposed to risk, including for precarious workers, is that, yeah, in theory, there are like legal mechanisms to sort those out, but those are slow um, and expensive and, and psychologically burdensome, really, right? So having a society that relies on 
punishment later for wrongdoing instead of a society that's set up for people to be able to do the right thing is is just I don't know, you're already starting on the back foot, basically. Do you know if prisons in New Zealand are any different? I don't think they are. I Yes. <laughs> it's not just us. <laughs> just as bad as far as I know. I mean I certainly know that there is horrible overrepresentation of Maori, our indigenous peoples, in prisons in New Zealand. The prison population is bigger than it should be. Uh, while there have been kind of moves towards home detention or, you know, alternative methods of justice, they haven't really decreased the prison population yet. Many of the prisons are already kind of out of the cities and hard to access, so people's ability to visit their families or have visitors, I guess, are already low. And yeah, I haven't seen any uh, information. Mind you, I haven't looked carefully, so I could be wrong, um, but I haven't seen anything saying that prisons are doing a good job of managing this. Yeah, and I'm I'm not an expert either, but the from the research I've been doing for this, it seems like most of the stories about prisons are people raising concerns. The one policy that I've seen a few times that seems to be beneficial is that um, for jails, there are a few places that are releasing some inmates. So Ontario's a, one of the places where that's happened. They've a uh, reduced their jail population by about 28%. And there are also um, a whole bunch of American states that have done the same. Uh, and that just, I mean, people in jail, a lot of them aren't ever going to be convicted. So it really seems like the right thing to do in a pandemic, unless you've got like a really high risk of violent reoffending, to just release people in jail, find an alternate arrangement, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm assuming that there are going to be massive court backlogs for a while too, right? So to have those people yeah. sitting there kind of awaiting trial indefinitely is very cruel. So I mean, that's really good to hear. And I hope that, that there are ways of supporting those people to make sure they are able to safely self-isolate um, once they're kind of back in communities. Oh, I thought of one good thing. New Zealand did so (laughs) you know there are a couple but um basically the government has taken control of a bunch of hotels and motels and made sure that people who are experiencing homelessness are off the streets I cannot attest to whether this has been 100% effective um but it is a really important thing to do uh shelters are probably not a good place to be right now it is very hard to get people to have yeah, they're bad places space. to be anytime. <laughs> yes, good but point. Especially during a pandemic. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So getting people into their own uh, hotel rooms, I, I've heard that that's gone well. I hope that they're doing kind of wraparound social supports for that because that can be very stressful for someone who's used to being outside um, to adapt. But it is, of course, possible with the right, right setup. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. I, it's been um, super uneven the extent to which that's happening in Canada. And for the most part, people who are experiencing homelessness are sort of stuck in slightly more distant mass, shel- mass shelters, which are not going to be effective to prevent the spread in addition to all the problems that they regularly have. But yeah, I want to maybe talk about, because this is also sort of an economic crisis, we've talked about that a little bit. But I was wondering if you could talk about some of the ways that this pandemic is likely to make our economy less equal as the pandemic sort of goes on in the medium term and also sort of for the future. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, any time that you have unemployment going up, you are seeing inequality increase, basically, right? We live in a wage-based society. We live in a world that requires people to be earning a wage to get what they need to survive, with a few kind of bits of padding here and there, uh, you know, the what's left of our welfare states, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean... Yes, some people who lose their jobs might have money saved and they might be okay and they might bounce back. But for a lot of people, that's not going to be the case. Um, it's going to be a slow road back to a kind of, uh, you know, having unemployment rates that are, are reasonable or what some people consider reasonable because we are, of course, still in a world where full employment is not the main economic goal of any country. Um, we've been there since the kind of late 70s, early 80s shifts in how we think about managing economies. So, I mean, a huge part of this problem is that uh, in Canada and the US and many places, your ability to secure what you need is tied to work, and your ability to secure what you need through social policies is also tied to your work status, right? So, I mean, in Canada, if you are an employee, you might be able to access unemployment insurance. Even that's not, you're not going to be having a lot of fun, right? It, it pays out at, at a maximum of 55% of your earnings, and that's capped at $573 a week. The length of time you can get it for is also capped. Um, but there's a growing population of people who are not eligible for that at all. And in a normal time, those people would be getting assistance from province, which is way lower uh, in Ontario. Yes. <laughs> The rate for Ontario Works is just over $700 a month. In Alberta, it's the same. That's less than my rent. Yeah. I actually, um, I've been doing some disaster assistance for COVID, and I had a situation where there's a, a person we've been dealing with who could qualify for Ontario disabilities benefits, but he could also apply for the Canada Employment Response Benefit or um, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. And frankly, <laughs> he should just apply for that for now because it's a much higher level of assistance. And it's it's hard because you, you don't really know what to say to that person because for the long term, they probably should be on this other policy, but it's just so unfair, you know? Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, I would advise anyone in that situation to choose the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, which pays out at two grand a month, which is so much more. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure it's still really difficult to make that work, especially if you've been earning more than that and you're used to, or you have higher rent payments or whatever. But that's a huge issue. So Canada has this, this emergency response benefit that's supposed to help smooth over this difference between who can get uh, employment insurance and who cannot. But at the moment, it's it's temporary. So I think Canada and a lot of countries are facing this really big question around once a government has recognized that there are a whole lot of people that cannot get the assistance they need when they lose work, and once they put in place these temporary measures, well, these are not actually temporary problems. So do you extend the temporary measures forever? I, I don't know. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I think, Spain is maybe the one place where that conversation is happening, or it is at least one place where that's being considered. 
There is some discussion that there will be a permanent move to universal basic income. It's a monthly payment that goes to everybody uh, irrespective of your employment status. But there's still a lot of questions about whether that truly will be universal and um, what conditions will be applied to it, if any, and things like that. So, Yeah, absolutely. Apparently, there's a town in Brazil that has done the same, which is interesting, but it's just at the municipal level. So it's like quite a small program. I've been thinking a lot about the short-term kind of social assistance packages that have been cropping up. And one thing I tried to do yesterday was to think about if I am evaluating these social policy responses based on my uh, belief system that people should be treated fairly and equitably, that everyone should have the ability to secure their basic needs, what would I be looking for um, from a social policy response? And so one of the key things for me is making sure that that assistance is really easy to get. There's really cool scholarship by two American professors, Pamela Hurd and Donald Moynihan, which looks at administrative burdens, which is basically all the ways governments can make it difficult for people to get the policy things that they're supposedly entitled to. So minimizing paperwork, making sure it's easy for people to understand what's available and how to get it, treating people equally, um, and trying to decrease the stigma associated with getting assistance from the government are kind of their key principles behind that. And I think that's a really helpful lens to look at policies through. Yeah. And um, were you able to, to see any sort of big successes or big failures in that area? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the emergency response benefit in Canada is like a, a reasonable success. So I've heard from a few people who have applied that it's very easy and that you get your money very quickly. And that's partly because Canada decided to go with a sort of um, presumptive eligibility arrangement, which is the idea that you just assume everyone who applies should get it and they'll work it out later. So that really speeds things up. Definitely. And I think this is... Um, so yeah, I really like that feature of the, the CERB that... Um, they're sort of just giving people the money now and sorting out the questions later. I think that's really important. Um, but at some point, there's still going to have to be some evaluation on a needs basis because they've chosen to have a targeted policy. And, and that wasn't something they necessarily had to do. So I'm wondering if, if you've got thoughts on uh, whether that was sort of a good or bad approach. Yeah, I think that's such a tough question, right? And it's, it's easy to, well... Kind of easy to contrast it with what the U.S. has done, sending everyone a, a check. If the U.S. had decided to send everyone a check monthly, but they've gone for this one-off uh, payment model to everyone. Yeah, should it be targeted or not? Well, we have seen Canada kind of keep uh, expanding eligibility, which is positive. So they've just announced that um, you can still get the emergency response benefit if you earn $1,000 or less a month. So if you're a gig worker and your income is all over the place, and you were still doing okay in March, but now people are really not uh, ordering Uber Eats or Foodora anymore, and your income's really declining, or you've started to freak out about your health, so you've decided basically not to work, now you can get it. So I think that's really good, but it does show you that the policy design is already limited by being targeted rather than eligible, uh, rather than restricted, yeah. Yeah, and like I don't want to criticize the government too much on this because it's good that they've been flexible, but the fact that the rules are changing so frequently, I think 
even if the application process itself is easy, um, people might be very confused about whether they're eligible or not. And so you might be leaving certain people who would be eligible out of the system because the vast majority of people are, I, it's been my experience anyway, they're honest and they want to try to understand what is something that they're entitled to versus something they're not. And so if they initially hear of this more restricted program and they think, oh, that doesn't apply to me, they may not in the future be looking at these like press releases or listening to Trudeau's daily updates. And so they may not know that they qualify now. I think that's a really good point. And and that's a really solid point in favor of uh, having a universal payment, at least in, you know, for the four month period and then thinking about a, a targeted one ongoing so that it is sustainable. I mean, so one of the other issues that that comes up when thinking about this kind of issue of, of learning and who can actually access things is totally around the role that nonprofit organizations, community-based organizations usually play in helping people understand what is available for them. Those organizations are not functioning in the same way they usually do, right? My research before this was looking at organizations that help people access training. And a lot of them operate as drop-in centers where people can come by and have a chat. And that means that people can, you know, get quick suggestions. Oh, I think you'll be eligible for this. Let's sit down and look at this application. Let's figure this out. Or, yeah, I know that you'll be eligible for this. Just fill this in and we'll get it done. That's not happening right now. And it makes sense that that's not happening right now. But that is going to mean that people miss out on stuff they would be entitled to. Yeah, and even a lot of these nonprofits are... They're trying to come up with virtual structures, but there are limitations to that. And I think these organizations recognize that, that like, as soon as you are asking someone to take the step of going to a website and calling and potentially being placed on hold or um, having a specific appointment time, that that does decrease the the number of people that you can help. Um, And especially the most vulnerable tend to be the ones that aren't able to, um, to, sort of avail themselves of those kinds of systems. So it'll be interesting to see what the aftermath of that is when things go back to a new normal. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think one of the challenges we're seeing right now is that it's um, challenging to collect this information in a, a really systematic way right now, too. So we don't know, and we won't know for some time, how many people aren't getting things that they would be entitled to or you know, tried to get some sort of support and then were put off by having to wait on the phone or by not understanding the online system. Um, I was digging around in the emergency response benefit application thingy yesterday. And it is confusing that it can be, you can apply through Service Canada or through the CRA, which like on the one hand may be good, but on the other hand, kind of confusing. (laughs) Yeah, I think especially because people oftentimes have an expectation that like the government's trying to get you, you know, and if you make one mistake, you'll be sort of thrown out of the process. Definitely like when you apply for health cards in Ontario, that's the thing. If you've like forgotten one piece of ID, you've got to go back and stand in the line again. Um, but I think in this case, they're, they are accepting both kinds and they're trying to be generous with it. 
So. Yeah, and I think that they'll probably be a little bit more forgiving than usual. Although, speaking as somebody who the CRA has audited for five Ooh. years in a row, even though I didn't make <laughs> any money in Canada for three or four of those years, I'm not a huge fan of that system. And I can understand other people's trepidation <laughs> to get in there on it. Because it's like, if I make a mistake, you guys are going to chase me and it's going to be like a lost day or two while I try to like organize all my paperwork to send to you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's very scary nobody wants to be in that situation and i'm like why are you auditing me i don't i, I don't make any money <laughs> like nothing. i look at my yeah nothing. like what do you want from me you should probably go after somebody who is shoring all of their money in offshore accounts which you can clearly see i am not doing <laughs> oh, yeah and if they know about an offshore account in your name they should tell you so that you can uh, get that money oh my god yes please <laughs> that would explain all of the chasing they've been doing They're like you're a secret billionaire i'm like ooh, can you give me the pin number to that bank account <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me where my money is because i don't have it <laughs> that actually um that that brings me to kind of another thing about the longer term side of this that really it seems like the barrier is tax fairness right that we can't fund anything like a a sort of long-term version of the CRB or like universal basic income until we deal with the revenue problems that the government has. Um, and I just, I don't know. Do you think people are going to be more amenable to that in the future or not? Boy, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. I'm so curious to know how this affects people's values and beliefs and preferences uh, when it comes to social policy it could go either way. So I was looking, I, you know, I'm a millennial, I get a lot of newsletters <laughs> from other millennial women who are trying, you know, to like, figure out how to have emotions and all that kind of crap. And one of the newsletters I read this morning had, um, I do not remember which newsletter, what, which it was, I'm so sorry to the person whose newsletter <laughs> it is. They had some quotes in there from a book by Rebecca Solnit, which is all about how people respond to uh, emergencies in the long term. And basically, you know, a simple way to think about it is on a binary of some people value community even more. They value people coming together more, helping each other, redistributing goods. And I would maybe make a leap from those values to tax fairness, although probably that's not the leap everyone makes. Um, and some people hunker down and freak out and hoard toilet paper or guns or whatever. <laughs> I, I heard a horrible story from a friend of mine in New York about a neighbor who'd bought a crossbow, which just scared the what? shit out of me. Um, <laughs> was like, okay, that's one way to react, I guess. So what are we going to see coming out of this? Are people going to want no taxes, personal crossbows, or are they going to want <laughs> to really address the, the huge wealth inequality um, that we live in right now? So we're either going to get people going hardcore socialist or hardcore individualist and like no in between. <laughs> well, I mean, the other option is just that things stay more or less the same. <laughs> That's what happened in 2008. So. Yeah, oh, totally. Yes. <laughs> I had this exact argument with my parents on Skype the other day where they were like, you know, oh, like the, the labor government in New Zealand is doing so well. Um, definitely, you know, like a great time to improve social policies. And I was like, well, one... New Zealand hasn't doubled welfare payments, um, and that's another group actually we haven't talked about today is people who are unemployed before the recession, sorry, before the, the pandemic, who are, are not getting anything and won't get anything from CERB. 
And two, like 2008 was this huge, uh, what I would call like a policy window, a time where you have the potential for governments to do a whole lot of really important stuff that really reshapes society and reshapes economies. And nothing really changed. And so that might happen again. Yeah. Do you, do you have any thoughts on like what might, what's going to influence whether a change happens or not? Any thoughts on that? One part of it might be whether we can get some really clear messaging around what an, a new way of thinking about society would be coming out of this. So maybe this is a time where something like the Green New Deal, where you can link together the idea that we have equality and green jobs together. Maybe if we have something like that, that people can attach their attention to, maybe that will work. Um, maybe if we promote the, you know, the social cohesion that comes from everyone agreeing to stay home, to see those as like shared wins that we've all contributed to. Yeah. I also think um, there's something to the fact that we're trying policies that look a little bit like universal basic income, because one of the refrains that we've heard a lot is, oh, this is a policy that we've only tested at a very small scale. Uh, there'd be no way to scale it up. And people just have a really tough time imagining it. But now it's become very concrete for people. People are getting cash transfers in their bank account. They can kind of see how that might be then applied to people that make more on their taxes later. That's something that like politicians are discussing. So maybe, maybe that kind of experience could create a policy window for universal basic income at the very least. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's possible. I, I think you're right in that this is a great opportunity for governments to demonstrate that they can actually do this and, and reasonably simply too, right? Like, Governments have been making changes so quickly, and yes, they will need to make tweaks, but in any country where there's reasonable state capacity, where you have some cool people who care, uh, making, designing your systems and things like that, you can implement this stuff. Um, and then just figuring out how to fund it long term, which should be possible. Yeah, I mean, you, you have like a proof of concept thing, I guess. Well, and personally, as a low wage earner, it would be great to not have to work two or three jobs my entire life. Yes. <laughs> a little bit of a boost would go a long way to making me not have to work 70 hours a week. Yeah. Well, I think that's another that's another area where we're seeing that governments can actually do things. It's not impossible to regulate in that way, right? Like the the government in your province, Kyla, has made those rules for on a temporary basis, but for long term care workers, they've said, you can only work in one care home, but also care workers have to get full time hours and at a standardized rate of pay. And I think that's something that like, would have blown the minds of policy commentators, like three months ago, you know, I mean, what's the point of having an NDP government, if not for... <laughs> Some good social policy occasionally. They're actually helping us with rent as well. I, I applied for that yesterday, and it was it was pretty straightforward, really easy to apply. But I think it'll just based on the questions it was asking. I think it'll still leave some people behind. So like what? 
Like you need to have proof that you've lost your income. But for instance, my my roommate is a student, right? And so his income comes from, uh, well, various sources. But for the most part, um, he's going off of savings or or his parents' help, and his parents' income has been disrupted. So, you know, it's just going to be really complicated for him to provide. Like for me, I can I can provide a record of employment that shows that you know I worked this many hours last year and I'm not working right now, but. Students don't have that, and you know, if if they were planning on working over the summer to help build up that savings that would then pay their rent for the next year, that's something they're not going to be able to do. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I think, I mean, the Trudeau government has said that they're going to address post secondary stuff, but they haven't announced what exactly that will look like. And you know, this goes back to that point about um, choosing to have a targeted policy over a universal one, where they keep trying to have to add on little bits and pieces to make up for all the things that they didn't think about with the original design. Yeah, I think it's been so interesting. Like the the government in Canada has been, they've been in a position where they've been trying to use sort of like the orthodox economic thinking, like you use tax incentives and existing like employment insurance programs and things like that. And they've been trying to stick within that sort of framework that Nothing big needs to change. And they keep getting pulled, um, and not just from like the social democratic side, but also from conservatives who want to see more robust supports for small and medium businesses and things like that. Um, and so they're, they're almost being sort of like, um, they're being dragged into more radical policy, but they really don't seem like they want to be, you know? I think that's a really good point. Yeah, so just on this this kind of question about like crappy jobs and keeping the economy the same, the setup the same, and the government being pushed around by small businesses or people concerned about business as well as people concerned about uh, poverty and meeting basic needs, and the the whole question around this wage subsidy program um, that you and I, Kristen, talked about a little bit via email is a super interesting one, right? So on the one hand, we have economists coming out saying the way to deal with unemployment now is to subsidize wages and try to like freeze the economy, right? This is the term that uh, Fleming Larson has used, who's a, a Danish academic, to describe how um, European welfare models are trying to keep uh, things under control. But Kristen, you rightly pointed out that this might mean just keeping someone like Kyla in three different jobs that all pay terribly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could get a better job. I just like being a tour guide you know what I mean (laughs) but that happens to be pretty seasonal (laughs) totally but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be remunerated fairly for being a tour guide um or that you shouldn't have some kind of security around that even if it is a seasonal job right yeah so like do we actually want to freeze our economy the way it is or do we want to find ways to address those imbalances especially for people who are in precarious and essential uh, employment positions. Yeah. And of course, the worst of both worlds would be not freezing that situation and then also not addressing those inequalities, which is a real risk as well. <laughs> Excellent point. Places. Yes, uh, the US might be heading in that direction, for example. <laughs> yeah, it could be big trouble. Um, so when we do the podcast, we like to end with a call to action. And I'm curious as to whether... Like, do you want to suggest one? Otherwise, we can make one up. <laughs> Vote. 
(laughs) That's always a good one. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Vote for the social policies that you believe in. Vote with a consideration to whether our healthcare systems and our social systems are robust enough. Um, The other call of action I would say is anytime you're having a shitty day, which happens a lot for a lot of us at the moment, see if you can drop $10 to a food bank, you know, uh, digitally, I mean, like, (laughs) <laughs> do that that little thing that is like okay well my day's crappy but at least someone can have a meal now who wouldn't otherwise that's a really good one i, yeah, like I really that. like that yeah and is there anything that um that you want to plug anything you're working on right now or anything like that i don't know I, i'm still figuring out what this means for my bigger research project which is around uh, access to training for people who are unemployed which will become obvious. So I guess like look out for future stuff, I would say. (laughs) Um, But honestly, I'd be super curious to know what people are thinking about these issues, uh, whether there's research coming out that I've missed. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Alex J. Jansen. It's A-L-I-X-J-J-N-S-E-N. I think at this point, yeah, I just want to continue these kinds of conversations. And you're pretty active on Twitter. You share some good stuff. So. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's nice. I'm pretty inconsistent, but I think I've definitely been on Twitter more than normal lately. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> Speaking of Twitter, you can get the podcast at Pullback Podcast on Twitter. Uh, and we have also been hanging out there a little bit more often. So <laughs> you can add us there. Thanks, Alex, for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll catch you soon. Yeah, I feel like New Zealand has the same relationship to Australia as uh, we have to the States, maybe. (laughs) Super similar, super similar dynamic. And actually, I forgot to shout out that Australia is one of the few governments that has doubled its payments for people on welfare. So I I should have done that. Um, A rare moment where I would praise the Australian government. It's usually just an absolute (laughs) carnival, honestly. (laughs) 